In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I get to chat with the CEO in charge of a revolutionary program that delivers transformative rites of passage for young people all over the world. Arne Rubinstein has built on his experience as a GP and emergency room doctor to develop courses that support the transition from teenager to adulthood to create well-being, resilience and belonging. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Anna Rubenstein, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Very happy to be here. The Rites of Passage Institute, how did it all come about? Oh, well, um, on a personal level, uh, I was a doctor originally and I worked in family practice as a general practitioner and one of the things that I saw time and time again was uh, older people coming in and I would listen to their stories and, and they would say, you know, it sounds cliche, but they wish they'd spent more time with families and doing those sorts of things and just working their whole lives. Um, and then I worked as a emergency medicine doctor for nearly 15 years and saw a procession of teenagers uh, who were coming in having basically done some pretty stupid or regretful things that could potentially affect them the rest of their lives. Um, and in, then in the early 90s, I actually went on a, a men's retreat and basically found that all the men had very similar issues, which I'm very happy to talk about. Uh, but one of the big things that was spoken about there was, you know, imagine if there'd been something for us when we were teenagers. And that was when I first heard the word, the words, rites of passage and discovered that all over the world, communities would create rites of passage for their boys and their girls as they were moving from the stage of child to adult and that the elements were always the same. And that made me realize that if the elements were the same and we could make those elements relevant to today's society, we could still be creating modern day rites of passage. And in fact, from there, I also came to believe that our children, because we're not creating rites of passage for them, they're creating their own and often with disastrous consequences. So, you know, I, long story short, ended up getting out of my medical practice and setting up rites of passage and now I've started and, uh, and I'm, I'm the CEO of the Rites of Passage Institute. Do you miss medicine? No, I don't actually. Uh, I had a very good run in medicine, you know, for nearly 20 years, um, and it's a it's a privilege to be a doctor, but it's also a hard slog, and um, it's as well as that, it's very frustrating because the actual medicine itself is a noble profession, but the system is not, and the system very much pushes you towards seeing more patients, and, and unfortunately, is very economically based it's around you know how much money you can can make in the business of medicine and it should never be a business and i found i was having to do a lot of curative medicine so waiting till people got sick and then trying to keep them going um and in a system that i really didn't like and what i do now i believe is preventative medicine so it stops people getting sick in the first place and it's out of the system and so i still believe i'm a doctor just in a different guise. 
How are you preventing the sickness that you talk about? Well, one of the things I really saw in medicine was that a lot of the issues that the elderly were dealing with actually started when they were teenagers. Um, and so uh, if they had a self-esteem issue, then that manifested in eating disorders, too much food, not enough food, or in alcoholism or drugs or unhealthy relationships or becoming workaholics to try and prove something to a father who never acknowledged them or, you know, a whole mountain of different issues. And we can help them actually resolve those issues or acknowledge those issues when they're teenagers, then potentially they don't have to spend the rest of their lives compensating. So that was one thing. And the other was the, the, the large number of teenagers who I dealt with in my emergency departments who had actually injured themselves or done something they would regret for the rest of their lives in an attempt to create a personal initiation. If we were creating healthy initiations for them, or healthy rites of passage, then they wouldn't be having to do it themselves. And they would grow in a healthy way from their rite of passage rather than um, you know, being traumatised and wounded from it. When you're talking about teenagers, though, would you say that in some ways it's too late because psychologically the patterning is developed between one, two, three and seven years of age and you're starting as teenagers? Uh, well, this is a great question because uh, rites of passage are actually a community process. And um, one way of looking at it is that if we put these teenagers through healthy rites of passage and part of it is they can actually see where their psychological patterning came from, then hopefully by the time they become parents, they do it differently. So that's one way of looking at it. And the other is that, yes, we all have psychological patterning. It's a great expression. I call it just the psyche, but we, ha we all have psychological patterning. But the majority of people are not aware of their own psychological patterning. It's running our lives and we don't even know it. And, and one of the things around a rite of passage is an increased awareness of what our psychological patterning is. And through that awareness, we can either change it or at least manage it or you know, be aware of it, um, which is a hell of a lot better than having it, no idea that it's even there and having it run our lives. You run a lot of camps to educate young men and help them transition. Can you get through to them in a couple of days? Um, well, most of our camps are more than a couple of days. They're generally five or six days, which is still not a you know, it would be great to be able to take them away for six weeks, three months, which interestingly is what quite a lot of schools, more and more schools are doing now. They're running retreats around about year nine, which is exactly the age we work with, and they take them away for, you know, Geelong College, Geelong Grammar, sorry, in Melbourne. They go away for a year. They have a special campus called Timbertop. They go down there for a year. Uh, the School of Total Education does a one-year discovery program. Um, Glenn Gary in Sydney does a six-month retreat. Uh, so more time is always better, but also we have to work in the time that we have. And you can create, you can do a, a huge thing in a short period of time if you know what you're doing and you do it well. So, for example, on our camps, we don't just take the boys, 
we take their dads as well or a male mentor and there's no technology and we in many ways what we do is men's work in front of boys so we get the, the dads sharing their stories and for example on the first night we'll get the dads sharing a story with the boys present in a circle uh, and the dads will ask them to share a story and tell us what was their relationship like with their own father when they were the age of the boys who were on the camp. And that's a massive story for a lot of these dads. And many of these dads have never spoken about this in their lives. And in fact, for many of the dads, it's a very emotional story because they had such unsatisfactory relationships with their dads. And these are huge circles. And the boys are sitting there listening. And they're like, oh my gosh. And at the end of the circle, which might take up a couple of hours, and I guarantee you no one's moved, we say to the boys, if you become a father and you have a, a child, what would you like your child to say about you as a father? And from the answers that the boys give us, we know that they've heard, we know that it's made an impact, and it's, it's inside. It, you know, this actually changes their psychological patterning. But having said that, rite of passage is actually three stages. It's a separation from your community, a transformation where you go through a process, and then a return and an integration. So it's not only about what you do over that period of time that you've got the boys away or anyone away, it's very much about how you integrate it and then take it into life moving forwards. And that is actually the hardest part, but probably the most important part if the process is going to be successful. How hard is it to stay on track, though, once they get back into mainstream civilization, as you say, they've got so many distractions these days. Do you find them falling off the rails and needing a refresher? How hard is it? It's bloody hard. You know, they've got social media from the moment they get off the camp. They've got, you know, all their mates at school who haven't been on the program, who want them to just be like they were before. It's all of that. And often they regress. And, and we say to the parents, know that there's a really good chance that they'll regret, they will regress. And even though they might have been amazing and fabulous on the program, you know, there's a really good chance that they are going to regress. That's normal. However, what we say is a few things. Uh, we talk about that there's a seed being planted in these boys as a result of having come on this program. They've seen and heard things that they've never experienced before. And these boys, they will be better fathers, partners and community members as a result of this program. So often you don't see the results. But look, I got a call, true story, last week, 32-year-old man who runs a music production business, came on my camp when he was 13 years old. Now he's calling me because he just wants to get involved. He's like, I often think about it. And I want to now go, you know, be in there and supporting. So, and, and, and there are countless young men I know in our community who I have no doubt their lives have been changed from this work. And in fact, our camp manager, the program manager of our, our camps up here, uh, who is 35 years old and just had his own son, his first baby, he came on camp when he was 13 and I was his facilitator. And now he's our program manager. 
you talk about several different uh, countries that it, that rites of passage is right around the world. Why is it then that your program goes to about 20 countries? Well, traditionally, rites of passage were in communities everywhere. And this is a very interesting thing because back then, back in the day, let's you know go back a few hundred years and if we're talking about Indigenous communities, they didn't have conferences where they all got together and said, how do we look after our kids? What's this well-being stuff? None of that. But what they did have was thousands of generations of human behaviour to observe. It's extraordinary. And they all worked out, you have to do something with your boys once they reach puberty. You have to. And they also recognised by that you have to do something with your girls. Now, I'm talking today mainly about boys, but I just want to note that this was also, rites of passage were created for girls. There was a difference in how they did them, but they were created. So with the boys, very often what they did was when the boys were young, they were allowed to run amok and they were, you know, they went out into wherever hunting and they slept in the, in the space with the women and often with their mothers and, you know, they were allowed to be boys. But then they recognised there was a time when that part of your life finished and you became a young man. And as a young man, you had responsibilities in the community, you were watched over by the elder men who mentored you, and you were no longer a mummy's boy. You know, you no longer slept with your mum, you no longer, you know, demanded everything that you wanted in life, and your mum was there as your servant. You know, you actually had to step up and become a young man. And there were privileges of being a young man, but there were also responsibilities. And they recognised that if you didn't create this shift, it would be a disaster because then you'd have boys running the community and they would just be thinking about themselves. And, and I have to say, by the way, I believe we live in a world that's predominantly run by boys. I'll just put that in there and we may get to explore that a bit more. But, you know, as part of my work, I looked at what was the shift that they were all seeing needed to be created to make this um, you know, why did they want to shift boys to becoming men or young men for a start? And, and basically, there's a the psychological patterning or belief system of a boy is completely different from that of a man. And I've written a model about it. So the the beliefs of a boy, and if anybody listening has children, um, you know, under 12 or 10, you know, you'll probably recognise this. So children, boys, believe that they are the centre of the universe. It's all about them. And they want as much power as they can get. You know, they want to win. And if something goes wrong or they don't like something, they can't handle their emotions and they're likely to have a temper tantrum. Um, and they think they're going to live forever. Yeah, all of these are fine. This is normal boy behaviour. And the last one, they want a mother. They want a mother to do everything for them, to be there, to tell them how wonderful they are, to, to look after them, to cook for them, clean for them, everything like that. Now, that's fine in a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a ten-year-old. But if you imagine a grown man who still thinks he's the centre of the universe, it's all about him, who still wants all the power, who still has a temper tantrum when he doesn't get what he wants, who still thinks he's going to live forever... 
and he's still looking for a mother to do everything for him, you know, that's not okay. Even though, ask any woman and she'll tell you that most men she knows, or many men, or often the man she married, that exactly describes him. So the indigenous communities recognize that what we're actually looking for is a shift to healthy man behavior, which is I'm part of the universe. My actions affect others. If I have power, that's not just for me. Power means I can actually do more good in my community. If I don't get what I want, I can't have a temper tantrum. That's actually domestic violence. Like I'm allowed to be angry, but I have to stand with my emotions. And emotional, physical, or verbal abuse is not okay. And I'm not gonna live forever, I'm actually mortal. And that affects how I live. And, and the final one is I'm not looking for a mother. I don't wanna marry my mother. I actually want genuine relationship and everything that that involves. And there's a huge difference there. And because we're not creating rites of passage, many men never go through that shift. And the women know it. Women know it. They know when they're married to a boy. They know when a man is a boy. And, and they're actually, they're over it. You know, and over half the relationships in Australia now are ending in divorce, the majority of which are initiated by the women. The women are leaving and going, you know what, I'm done. This is just like ridiculous. Do you find though that uh, there is the saying that men do marry their mother, that they look at that patterning, it's what they're comfortable with and that's what they're used to? Yeah, well, that uh, is very potentially a part of the problem that men do marry their mother and we don't have rites of passage. And look, that's not to say there aren't fantastic traits in our mothers. You know, my mother was the most fabulous woman I, I've ever known in many ways. But it's if we're out there looking for a mother, you know, if a woman has the same traits as your mother, fantastic. But if you expect her to treat you and act and be the way your mother was when you were six years old, that's a whole different story. If you think about the relationship of a, an eight-year-old with their mother, the mother does everything. The boy comes home from school. The mother says, what did you do today? Here's every single detail. The boy will never ask the mother what she did today. You know, <laughs> the boy takes off his clothes and drops them on the ground. Mum picks them up and washes them. The boy comes and sits at the table. Dinner's been prepared. He walks away from the table. Mum, you know, washes up his dishes. Um, you know, mum is always telling the boy how wonderful he is. All of those things. Once again, fine when they're six or eight years of age, but once, you know, in relationship, it's a two-way process. Do you find a lot of satisfaction when you watch that light bulb moment for young men when they're at your camps? Oh, look, it's one of the most satisfying things that there is. When we run our camps, over half the boys who come don't want to be there. And in our opening circle, when we ask them, you know, how they're feeling about being there, you know, hopefully a lot of them are honest enough to be able to tell us that they don't want to be there. In fact, once they, once the first one does that, we know the camp's going well because they now feel safe enough to be honest. But then after about a day, if that, something shifts. Because most of these boys are in a class with 25, 30 other boys or boys and girls and one teacher. 
majority of the time that teacher's a woman. Or they're in a sporting club with you know, 30, 40, 50 kids and a coach. And that coach may be a man, but there's like 50 of them, one man. When they come on our programs, we've got like maybe 24 boys and 24 dads and 12 facilitators who are all men, six or eight distinct facilitators who are all men, half a dozen returning young men who've been on camps before. And these boys are often for the first time in their life in real man energy, being held by a group of men who are all there for them. And so being a child and, and being a boy is like, why would they? And, and something drops for them and they realize, you know, it might be uncomfortable and it might be difficult, but they understand that this is for them and that there's valuable knowledge and wisdom being passed on. And, you know, one of our goals is to look for the, to, for the genius and the talent and the gifts and the spirit of each of the boys. And then we name it. And for a lot of these boys, this is a life-changing moment. You know, we, we actually have a process called honouring, which we do at the end of the camp. And one at a time, the boys sit on a special chair and their father comes up and in front of every, everyone honours his son, tells him what he loves about him, what he admires, what he's proud of, the gifts that he sees that he has. And one of the facilitators or another man will stand up and tell this boy or young man the gifts and talents that he sees in him. And, and, and this, this young man is being witnessed by 50, 60, 70 people in a way, in a process that he's never experienced before in his life. And it's it's a extraordinary thing to witness and to be part of. Does it also change the fathers? Oh, you know, it's a massive thing for the fathers because the majority of the men have never actually sat and shared in, an, in a safe and vulnerable place. And so we have to really set it up so it is safe, confidential, and people can be vulnerable. And for the for the men, it's completely life-changing. In fact, we often say that for the in the short term, the camp is more has more impact on men than the boys. But there's this seed that's planted in the boys. And and for many of the men, it really makes them aware of where they need and want to change their lives. And, you know, for example, we have, a, we have another ceremony we do towards the men, towards the end, sorry, where everybody says something that they're going to do differently when they, go, when they go home. We start at the oldest and we work all our way down to the youngest. And the men consistently talk about very powerful things like, you know, I'm going to work less and be with my family more. I'm going to spend more time with my son. I'm going to spend more time with my wife. I'm going to stop drinking i'm gonna you know whatever and and these are real commitments that are made in a place where they're very present there's been no technology for days they've been in the bush sharing their stories listening to other stories supporting the boys doing all the stuff we do it's a big thing is it a very tactile environment so first of all when you said tactile it's hugely tactile because we're in the bush well Mind you, well, not always. You can do these programs anywhere. I, I like to do them in nature because of the beauty of nature and the, it's just such a perfect theatre for what we do. So that's very tactile because you're outside and there's sun and rain and wind and plants and you know that, that really opens people up. 
in, in terms of uh, tactile with, you know, hugging between people, well, certainly since COVID, it's a hell of a lot less tactile, that's for sure, but, you know, that will change. But also, uh, it, it is definitely tactile between the fathers and, and their own sons. Um, but we're also very wary of, um, you know, appropriate behaviour. So we have a very strong child protection policy. Um, and, you know, uh, we, you know, this is not a place where every man is going around giving huge hugs to every boy, you know, um, but it's definitely tactile between the, the family, you know, within the family. What we often see is very interesting that um, when they first arrive on the first day, you'll see the father and son sort of sitting or standing there and often they're standing together and they've got their backs to each other or they're sitting together they've got their, their, with their backs to each other because they basically don't know how to relate very well at the moment because you know, probably at home it's not that easy and often the dad's busy, the boy's busy and their relationship is pretty um, subdued. But they're standing together because that's the safest place and they don't know anyone else there. And then by the end of the camp, you'll see the boy's got his hand draped over his father's shoulder. Or the father's got his, you know, hand and he's sort of just rubbing his boy's back. And, you know, there's genuine affection there that you won't have seen at the beginning of the camp between a father and son. And that's a very beautiful thing to witness. What's your relationship with your father? Um, well, big question. My father is 91 and in the final stage of his life as in final weeks and months of his life. He's extremely unwell. Um, and um, I have a very loving relationship with my father, but a very difficult relationship with him. I, I say that I'm cuddling the cactus. <laughs> and my father had a very had a difficult upbringing. He had very little, if any, parenting sort of basically brought himself up, survived by working out how to do things on his own. So he had no role modeling for fathering. And so he was a father who worked very hard and provided for us, but had no, we had very little emotional connection with him. Um, you know, never would have told us he loved us when we were growing up uh, and was very, he was either working or doing his own thing. And if we wanted to come along while he was doing whatever it was, so if he was, um, uh, you know, uh, sailing or he used to have all these hobbies like growing mushrooms or making ginger beer or, you know, if we wanted to hang out and watch and listen and have him talk to us, he would do it. But he never came and did our stuff that we wanted to do. So we didn't have that sort of close relationship, but we're now at a point where I'm looking after him more than he's, well, he doesn't look after me anymore. And, and um, so it's a, it's a strong time. And since my mother passed away 15 months ago, that's what really opened my father up. So we've had the deepest, most beautiful conversations ever in the last year with him as a 90 you know, 91-year-old man and me as a 57-year-old man. Uh, and I certainly have a very different relationship with my sons from what I had with my father. 
What would your sons, I know you've got two sons and they've obviously would have been through the program. What do they say about you? Yeah, well, they both have been through the program. Uh, well, the first thing is they would be very open, as am I, in telling you that I have not been the perfect father. And, you know, I've had a whole raft of, um, you know, struggles along the way. However, we're very close. We speak every day or every second day. I speak to both of them. And um, we work on it. You know, my, my oldest son says, if something good happens, Dad, you're the first person I ring. And uh, my youngest son, who I'm very close to, and we have a lot of similarities, but we also clash. And we've been having counseling for about six months now. It's fantastic because we, you know, get to talk about our stuff. So, you know, I don't, it's not about pretending that we have the perfect relationship, I'm the perfect father or my son's the perfect son, but it's about, you know, doing it as well as we can and learning and growing in the relationship. And hopefully they will, you know, be even, you know, they'll be better fathers than I was. It's a, it's a, you know, it's an ongoing learning journey. What was their reaction when they went to the camp? Uh, well, first of all, different because they're different beings. Um, my youngest just absolutely loved it and just absolutely loved being there with me uh, and sleeping in the tent together and the sharings. You know, he, he has vivid memories of sort of every part of that camp. He, my youngest has been very hungry for attention and my attention, partly due to the fact that his mother and I separated when, we were, when, we were, when he was young. And my oldest son, uh, he also got a lot out of it, but, you know, he, he probably engaged more with the challenging side of the camp. Um, but certainly got a lot out of it, an enormous amount. And it, it was very powerful in our relationship. Talk about ritual integration and the death of normal. So um, one of the things with rites of passage is that they are a transition from one stage in life to the next. And, you know, we talk about boys becoming young men, but actually there are transition points all through our life. So there's a baby becoming a boy. That's a transition, you know, from crawling and being able, having to be fed and everything to being a boy who can walk, feed themselves, even go to the toilet. That's a transition. And then becoming a young man and then becoming an adult is another transition out in the world. Having getting into a serious relationship is definitely a transition. Becoming a parent is a massive transition. Becoming a community leader, becoming a grandparent, becoming an elder, dying, passing on. So all of those are big transitions. And, and I now look at it that life is like a staircase and we move through those stages. Now, at each stage, how we see the world, our beliefs and our values are going to be very different. So when we move from one stage to the next, we have to let go of a lot of our core beliefs and values. It's like I talked about the boy to man transition. You know, the boy to man, and then there's man to elder. And from boy to man is as different as it is from man to elder. And so what we think is normal actually has to die in many ways. And it's interesting that in a lot of the indigenous communities, death was very present during the times of a rite of passage. 
And, and in fact, in some of the communities, the boys, when they were going through their rite of passage, their faces would be painted white, which was the death mask. And the only other time in their lives that would happen would be when they actually did die. So it would be painted when they were a teenager, when they were in, going through puberty, moving from boy to man. It would be death of the boy and what was normal for a boy and birth of the man. And then there would be an, it would be painted again when that man did die at whatever age as the death of that physical man and I suppose then the birth of the, the new, they would believe, the new place of the spirit. Do you do anything like that in the camp? Um, uh, well, no, yeah, we, we have to be, um, we have to make it appropriate for where we are now. But, you know, we can talk about this idea that there's a part of the boys dying, but then it's about, okay, boys, you know, what are you going to leave behind? What part of you are you ready to let go of in order to move forwards and be a young man? And, um, you know, look, there, there are various things that we do, uh, but it's interesting because one of our challenges in running these camps is to actually make it powerful enough that the message really gets across to the boys. And our biggest objections to that will typically come from their parents and, well, even society. And so in most of the Indigenous communities, the parents were not present when the boys went through their rite of passage because the parents would try and stop it. <laughs> They'd try and keep them as boys. They'd try and protect them. Or they'd want to do it too early. The father would say, yeah, my son's ready. Chuck him off the boat into the river. He'll swim to the other side, you know. And so it's about, you know, our, our rites of passage have to be appropriate for today and for the community that we live in. And, you know, my whole vision and, and passion is to scale rites of passage, to make them available to every um, boy and girl in the country and in the world. And so, you know, we have to think if, if 60 minutes were along filming everything that we're doing, would there be an issue? Because the last thing we want is for someone to come along and go, oh, fantastic, we can sensationalise this and, and get some press for a few days and, you know, make some money. And if the organisation gets, you know, ruined because of it, well bad luck so you know when you look at what used to be done yeah not only did they paint the death mask on them but you know they did some pretty brutal stuff and, and you know the Maasai warriors the boys had to go out and kill a wild animal preferably a lion with a spear and they might have sent 20 boys out there and they only get 15 back and they go well that's okay that's how it goes that boy wasn't meant to come back you know, if we take 20 boys out, we have to bring 20 back every time. Um, so, you know, there are challenges in setting up appropriate rites of passage that will actually create the transition and the transformation that we want. You talk about uh, the Indigenous rites of passage. I find it interesting that you're working with Aboriginal communities. So you're giving back to Indigenous communities yes we are it's it's a very it's a great privilege 
um, and it's a it, it's delicate. So you know, I've been running Rites of Passage now for twenty five years, and uh, whilst you know a lot of Indigenous communities ran Rites of Passage, there were many communities and societies who ran Rites of Passage. I don't believe anybody has ownership over the concept of a rite of passage. But we've been very wary. I would never approach an Indigenous community and say, hey, you need a rite of passage. Um, however, we were approached by an Indigenous community, the Butchelor mob, in 2018. And their elder, Uncle Glenn Miller, got in touch with me because he'd heard about our work. And what he said was, we have a problem with our boys, which pretty much any community will tell you these days, and we want to create healthy rites of passage for them because they're running amok, but we don't know how to do it anymore because they haven't been, there haven't been rites of passage here on Bachelor Land for 200 years. Wow. Since the white men came, they stopped the running of the rites of passage. And he said, can you help us? We had a big talk. This was a, this was a big thing. And, and we all had to feel comfortable with it. And I said to Uncle Glenn after, you know, a lot of discussion that we would help them. And part of that was because I saw him as a visionary and he wanted this not only for bachelor boys, but for all boys. And we said, this is what we can do. We can, we can work with you and teach you what we've learned about the framework of a rite of passage the stages and the elements, but the culture and how it's done is going to have to come from you. And so they agreed on that and, and we did a training when I, I run right Passage Leadership Trainings at my property in the Byron Shire uh, near Mullumbimby and eight men from the community came down including Uncle Glenn and did our leadership training and then we ran a camp uh, for Bachelor and other boys from the local community, which was actually quite extraordinary. And it was very, very powerful. And then we've run three camps now, and we would have run quite a few more, except for we've had to put everything on hold because of COVID, and we'll be starting again uh, in 2022. And not only that, now other Indigenous communities around Australia are interested in learning about the framework and bringing their own culture into creating rites of passage in their communities. Must be a real honour. Uh, it is. It's a huge honour. You know, it's also hard work and a bit of a game of dodgem because there's lots of politics. Well, there's politics everywhere, by the way. But, you know, it, it's challenging. It's challenging. Um, you know, the work we've done with the Butchler Mob has been some of the most satisfying and um, incredible work I've ever been involved in in my life, and I've been involved in a lot of work. Um, but it is also challenging because communities are very fragmented and, um, and there's a lot of pressure on the young boys from uh, the communities, the society they live in that's very social media and video game orientated and unhealthy in many ways for them. So, you know, if we can have any sort of impact on changing that, that's really what we want. And, you know, I'll, I'll, let me talk about that for a minute because it's actually even better than 
uh, I ever imagined in that um, where we ran this program was uh, on the Great Sandy Strait looking out at Fraser Island and there's a national park there and there's some land in the national park called Ravens Hill and it's um, you know, a few hundred acres and that land has been open to the public and we use that land to run the, the camp and there's some big Aboriginal middens there and all sorts of things. Anyway, um, as a result of this camp and the other camps and Uncle Glenn's hard work and other men like Brad Crosby from Wild and Gordon Browning from PHN and other people, um, the, the land has now been leased exclusively to the Butchler mob for cultural and sacred work very much including rites of passage uh, for 25 years with an option to renew the lease. So that's incredible that this land is now available for that. And then on top of that, Uncle Glenn is talking about creating a new borer ring, a new sacred site on the land. And that, these are the things that really blow me away because we're creating a place where this work can happen and they're even going to create new sacred sites. And, you know, I always think of sacred sites are supposed to be 10, 20, 30,000 years old. But who said sacred sites can't be recreated? And for me, this is real healing and reconciliation. You know, I'm a white man working with an indigenous community to create rites of passage for their boys and dedicated sacred rites, that's like that I'm proud of and honoured to be involved in. What's the biggest thing that you've learned out of the program and what you've put in place? The biggest thing for me is as I sort of go deeper into the whole rites of passage world and understand it more, is just to see how necessary and how healing it is. And, and I, I have no doubt if we could create and have healthy rites of passage available for every boy and every man in the country, in the world, and, and girl and woman, we would have a completely, completely different world. Completely different world. And we would have people working together as communities rather than uh, in competition with each other. And it would be you know, an extraordinary thing. And this is actually, you know, what we need to be doing. Um, and so I, I, I used to think it was just boys to men. Then I realized it's boys to men, men to elders, um, and girls to women. And, you know, there's just so many layers in it. And, and, it, and it actually gives us a framework to live our lives because at the core, rites of passage are about creating healthy communities and social structure and about supporting each person to find their own individual gift, their own spirit. And that's like fantastic to have healthy communities made up of people who know who they are and what their gift to the world is and are supported to bring out their gifts. That would be astonishing especially when we can we live in a pretty much non-community or dysfunctional community where people don't know what their gifts are and instead of just trying to 
get as much as they can for themselves. They're trying to take from the world. Whereas a gift is only a gift if you give it away. Otherwise, it's not a gift, it's a possession. And let's face it, we don't need more possessions in this life. We need more gifts. <laughs> is there too much technology that we've got to deal with? Look, um, too much te technology is just what it is. We're not going to get rid of technology. Technology is not going to go away. It's all about learning how to turn technology into a positive tool rather than um, something that's going to destroy the earth. But it's no different from people. It's all about how to bring out the positive in people as opposed to having them destroy the earth. So exactly the same. Have you approached government to work, uh, work out programs that can go across the board in Australia? No, I haven't yet. Um, I think that's something for the future. I, I'm not sure that I feel like the government is the solution, actually. I feel like the solution has to come from people. So it hasn't been a strategy to try and get the government to do this, being honest. You're talking about different countries that you're working in. Which is the country that this has been most successful in? Um, well, our model is to train people in the framework of a rite of passage and then to support them to create their own program in their own way in their own community. So I've run uh, leadership trainings in quite a few different countries, probably uh, the European countries. Um, we've got strong representation and programs happening. Well, it's not we. We have supported people who have set up programs in Belgium, Holland, Sweden, Denmark, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Spain, um, and a number of other countries, Germany. And, and what's really good is now those people are talking more and more to each other and working together. So there's definitely a groundswell happening in the European countries. There's some very good work happening in New Zealand that we've been involved in, some good work happening in the United States that we've been involved in. But I think it's just early days. However, there's definitely a growth happening and people are extremely interested in this sort of work and there's great opportunity. You know, and my hope is in the same way that like yoga have become mainstream mindfulness meditation has become mainstream and i want to see rites of passage becoming mainstream again you say that it's still early days even though you've been doing it for 25 years what can you yes. achieve in the next 25 <laughs> well you know when i started talking about rites of passage everyone i spoke to had never heard of it and it was a completely foreign concept and people were very suspicious of it um, whereas, you know, now we're getting schools ringing us up saying, can you come and help us create rites of passage programs in our schools? And, and we've got people who we've had go through our programs and who we've trained who are now setting up serious programs at all sorts of different levels. People like Hunter Johnson, who set up the Man Cave in Victoria, that's been hugely successful and is now spreading to New South Wales. Uh, people like Mandy Cotter, who set up Flourish Girl, uh, you know, so many different people and, and lots of people who set up and are running programs that we don't even know about. 
So I kind of look at it like, you know, we've tried to light a fire and that fire is starting to spread more and more. And we've planted all sorts of seeds around the place and those seeds are not only growing, but they're joining up. So in the next 25 years, uh, who knows? But my hope is that through our programs, through the public speaking that we do, through the books that we create and put out there, that there'll be just more and more, it'll just become a no-brainer that when your son or daughter basically reaches puberty, you have to do something to acknowledge and celebrate the fact that they're moving from a child to a young adult, to celebrate and, and support the fact that they have gifts and balance and genius and spirit that has to be brought out into the world and, you know, that just more and more places will be taking that on. Is there an age limit? How old? No is the answer. No <laughs> is the answer. I can tell you that already. No, we're all, we can always grow and evolve and move to the next stage. Plus, because so many people haven't been through their earlier rites of passage, you know, the transition from boy to man, it may not have happened when you're a teenager. We may be in our 30s, 40s or 50s doesn't mean it's to say, oh, it's too late, I'm going to stay a boy for the rest of my life. You know, this work goes our whole lives. I'm seeing it in my father, who's 91. He's going through a massive rite of passage now of letting go of everything and preparing for the next the next stage, which he doesn't even know what it will be. That's death and death of the normal. You know, my, my father's about to pass, but pass to what? He, none of us know. None of us can tell him. People have theories and beliefs and ideas, but actually, we don't know. Is there a lot of fear involved with change? Yeah, there's always been fear in, you know, fear and change. You know, part, part one of the elements of a rite of passage is a challenge or an ordeal. And the definition of a challenge or an ordeal is being well out of your comfort zone, doing something that you don't know the outcome and there's fear involved. But those who don't go there, don't evolve, don't grow. Stay, stay stuck in an age and a stage that just doesn't work for them anymore. You were talking earlier about politicians and a lot of them that are still boys. How can we yeah. educate our politicians to grow up? I don't know that we can educate them. I think possibly we have to replace them. <laughs> to, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know that we're going to change them. You know, there's a huge, there, there's huge um, uh, influence keeping them the way they are. And, you know, politicians by definition are about politics. And one of the core things about being a politician is staying in power, you know, the absolute core thing about being a politician should be doing good for the community. But we know that um, there's so much influence from different places. It's an incredibly, incredibly hard job. And there are very good politicians, but um, it's a very, very difficult job. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be a politician. But then at some stages, some of these politicians will say what's been what they've been doing has worked for them. So why change? Yeah, I think when you look at why change, 
if you look at why would we change how we're, we're educating our children and you look at the mental health statistics, you can clearly see it's not working. And, and if we want to judge whether politics is working, we go, well, how well is our world doing? Are we looking after it? You know, is it in a healthy space? How well are people doing overall? Um, you know, it's, it's a big discussion. I, I think, you know, my personal belief is that, um, you know, politics, the, the people who are in the positions of leadership do change every four to ten years. And, and my hope is that we get diversity in our leadership, we get more female, genuine female representation in our, in our leadership, we get um, younger people. You know, having politicians who are in their 70s and 80s, I'm just going to say it, I think that's ridiculous. You know, I'm 58. I reckon I'm already too old to be a politician. The, the, the people in the position, the elders should be mentoring and supporting young, not trying to hold on to the power and lead themselves. And that's a big problem because the, 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 those in their 40s and 50s don't have the mentoring and the eldership that they need. And so the risk is that they become megalomaniacs and still think it's all about themselves. And the elders don't have the role that they should be playing available to them, which is to be mentoring the and keeping in, in sort of, uh, not under control, but, you know, keeping reality in the, in the ones in power and also supporting the young and, and passing on their wisdom and knowledge to the young. I, you know, the more I look at it, the more I see that our whole structure of our society is out of balance. And one of the key things of um, rites of passage is actually to keep a healthy social structure where children can be children, adults can go out and do their big thing in the world, and elders have a hugely important role mentoring, elder, mentoring the adults and supporting the, and seeing the gifts and the beauty of the young. Where would you put yourself in that social structure? Are you approaching being an elder? I think I'm approaching is a good word. I'm approaching being an elder. I feel like I've got a, my, my toes are just starting to scratch into that space. Um, and uh, my hope is that I can be a good elder. In fact, my, my hope is that eldership, I can do eldership the best of all the stages of my life uh, because it's, it's so needed. And, and we have plenty of older people but true elders are few and far between. You were nominated for an Australian of the Year Award in 2008. How important was that recognition for you and what you're doing? Oh, look, you know, that was a great honour, but I think um, it's not about me, it's actually about the work and uh, anything that we can do to bring the work out into the public eye and to have it seen as a genuinely important uh, and positive thing, that's what we need because most people still haven't heard of rites of passage or still think of rites of passage as getting drunk on your 18th birthday or 21st or going to schoolies, uh, you know, or all these different things that we do that are in fact extremely unhealthy and inappropriate. So 
you know, a big role for me is increasing public awareness of what we're doing and what we're talking about. You talked about schoolies, a rite of passage, a negative rite of passage. Is that what you think? Absolutely. Why is that? You know, I worked as an emergency medical doctor in Byron Bay for many years during schoolies when they called it a rite of passage. And I saw so many young men who'd been in fights or violently drunk or jumped off a balcony and hurt themselves or been in a car accident or overdosed or anything you could think of and girls who'd become drunk you know girls who'd left school and been, you know worked hard at school done everything come to to the gold coast or byron on the first night go out and get blind drunk and go off with a guy who they may well have never met and do something that they'll regret for the rest of their lives you know that's not the rite of passage i want to see our children going through that's the ultimate of an unhealthy rite of passage where they leave school and leave care and have no boundaries and the first thing they go and do is the most stupid, dangerous, impactful thing that they can find. You were talking about mental health and with the pandemic that's happened, how has that affected the rites of passage and the, the way kids are growing up these days? All right, the issues that we have did not start with the pandemic pandemic has uh, exaggerated and brought to light many of the issues including mental health so we know mental health statistics were already terrible and now they're terrible plus um, and what it's done is it's what well, it stopped us running many of our programs but it's made a huge shift in the schools who we're working with more and more as they are recognizing that they need to be do- doing more and more for their children from a mental health well-being point of view and also parents there's research that's come out from the McCrindle organization showing that 95% of parents are now as interested in the well-being program that a school has as they are in the academic outcomes when I went to school it was all about academic outcomes all anyone cared about was what mark you got at year 12 now the parents are saying actually we just want our kids to get through school and be okay you know, and so the schools are looking for genuine well-being programs that have genuine impact long term, and a lot of them are just landing on the fact that the work we do in rites of passage could have a key part of that, and so we're getting more and more schools approaching us to work with them. And if people are interested in the work that we do, on our website, the rightofpassageinstitute.org, right spelt r-i-t-e-s people can find out more about it and we have a program called transformational education which is looking at education not just being a and the students time at school not just being a time when they get knowledge put into them but where they actually transform from children to young adults who leave school future ready ready to get out there in the world ready to make a difference in a positive way and knowing who they are and what the gifts are that they bring to the world. You also have a couple of books that you've written on it, The Making of Men being one of those. Yes. Uh, well, one official book. I'm writing another book. It's a big process, but The Making of Men has now sold 25,000 copies around Australia and is available in bookstores or on our website. Uh, and The Making of Men um, is about boys. 
but 95% of what we talk about is just as relevant to girls. And we also wrote a small handbook on how to parent teenagers. And I will send you a link, which you can put up in the notes associated with this podcast. And anybody who wants a free copy of the How to Parent Teenagers Handbook, uh, which we normally sell, but I'm happy to offer a free copy to your listeners, can download that link and um, get a copy of that book. What's the biggest thing that you've done with the Rites of Passage? What's the most satisfying part of it? I would say the most satisfying part is just seeing it spread and grow and the fact that I get so many emails, thank you emails from people in Australia and around the world thanking us for what we've done and this might be 10, 15 years later. You know, mothers who say, I was worried I was going to lose my son and, you know, the rites of passage work changed his life. So things like that and then having those you know, young men contacting us and coming and working for us or finding out about programs that came from our work that we didn't even know that were running somewhere in the world. That's the sort of stuff that really gives me a lot of satisfaction. Uh, but my tendency is not to look at how much we've done, but to look at how much there is still to do. So that's possibly a personality type of mine, but, you know, there's still a lot to be done and... and uh, uh, it's a good time to be involved as there's more and more awareness of what's happening. So if someone does want to get involved, that website again? The Rites of Passage Institute, rights spelled R-I-T-E-S, rightsofpassageinstitute.org. Well, if they just Google Rites of Passage, they'll find us pretty quickly. So we have a, a, a three-day leadership training, which is about the framework of a Rite of Passage. It's very popular and I run them here in Byron Bay, so people have to come to Byron, but I also run them in other parts of Australia and around the world, so that's that's one area. And then also there's the work that we do in schools, and we have some online programs. We have an online training, a journey into Rites of Passage, so people have a look at our website. They'll find out the information there. With the camps that are coming up, a lot of them are fully booked, so you need to get in early. That must make you pretty satisfied that there's that reaction to what you're doing. Yes, it does make me satisfied. Uh, um, and uh, if people do book, we'll find spaces for them coming up. And, you know, we want as many people as possible getting involved because we know it is life-changing work. Anna Rubenstein, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. My absolute pleasure. Thank you.